I next met with Dr. Keith Flaherty for an oncology investigator perspective on these cancers. And to begin, we continue the discussion about basal cell carcinoma. Basal cell carcinoma, as most practitioners know, is an exceedingly common malignancy. In fact, it's so common that the cancer registrars who register cases for the SEER database and other cancer registries are basically asked to ignore basal cell carcinoma because (laughs) there's just too many cases of it, and they wouldn't be able to focus their attention on more life-threatening tumors. Now, as we'll talk about in a moment, that's not to say basal cell carcinoma can't be life-threatening, but think of it as a pyramid with a huge base of not even locally advanced, but just localized tumors that can be managed quite easily with surgical methods and on occasion topical therapy, short of surgery. But basically excision and even excision with narrow margins, for example, with Mohs surgery, that's the bread and butter presentation of basal cell carcinoma. These are typically slowly evolving lesions, almost always occurring on chronically sun-exposed skin, so face, neck, scalp, typically lesser distribution on the extremities, and pretty uncommon on the trunk. And they usually evolve over time. They'll have kind of a nodular look to them, non-pigmented, of course, and there's a firm nodular element to it in a lesion that's kind of been persisting or growing gradually over the course of months, if not years, then, you know, one should be suspicious, particularly, as I said, in those chronic sun-exposed areas. So as you said, people almost don't even consider this a cancer at some level because it's so easily manageable. What are the situations where this cancer gets out of control? Yeah, basically there are a few common scenarios to explain this uncommon entity of metastatic basal cell carcinoma. One to deal with immediately is so-called basal cell nevus syndrome. There are a few other genetic syndromes that can predispose to numerous basal cell carcinomas, and unfortunately over the course of one's life with those germline predispositions, one can develop fairly advanced and metastatic disease. And basal cell nevus syndrome is sort of the top one there. So this, of course, is an individual who's got dozens, if not hundreds, of basal cell carcinomas. It's not subtle to the practitioner when someone's been dealing with this since their late adolescence, typically. So it's not a real challenge to sort out at the individual level who might be this type of germline risk type of individual. So then the other folks are immunocompromised patients. So of course, you're familiar with the phenomenon of squamous cell carcinoma, not only emerging superficially, but becoming advanced and even metastatic in immunocompromised individuals disproportionately. Same is somewhat true for basal cell carcinoma. But even then, usually one has to add an additional layer. And that's really the issue of neglect, which sort of sounds like a very judgmental term, but simply put, lesions that are hidden in places where people just aren't monitoring themselves. This is true for the scalp, the posterior neck, for example, even the upper back. In my experience, these are the classic areas where someone can basically sort of cruise along with a developing lesion in one of these sites that not only sort of escapes their attention, but really anybody else's as well. A common scenario, for example, is a single older man who just doesn't have someone looking after him in terms of this type of issue. And they'll come in because they notice kind of blood staining on their undershirt or maybe when they were brushing their hair or something. And so for the possibility of metastatic disease to develop, even in some immunocompromised folks, it can require a lot of time for that lesion to be sitting there. So you could say in general that early recognition and treatment is a foundation for cancer therapy, but here you've got a long runway to work with generally speaking, for basal cell carcinoma. So we're going to talk in a moment about locally advanced disease because that's actually where there's a much bigger 
clinical problem that does occur with some frequency, and I think practitioners are going to find themselves confronted. But before we jump into that, obviously, it is important to wrestle with this issue of kind of who gets metastatic basal cell carcinoma. And generally speaking, it's, again, the germline predisposition carriers, and then generally older individuals who've kind of escaped medical surveillance for some number of years to allow these lesions to grow to a size where they actually have metastatic potential. Any current estimate of the number of deaths annually from basal cell cancer? Yeah, it's not well cataloged in the registries, which is a problem, but it is estimated that it's at least a couple few thousand per year in the U.S. That compares to about 8,000 a year currently for melanoma. When you consider that basal cell carcinomas vastly outnumber melanomas, I mean, more than 100 to 1, it's several hundred to 1 in terms of incidence, when you consider that the fatality rate annually is less, that means that you're left with kind of a per case fatality rate that's really very, very low. And so the emergence of this new therapy should not be putting people on alert that they've kind of fallen asleep at the switch and are unaware of basal cell carcinoma in terms of its predisposition for being metastatic or life-threatening. But it is a real clinical phenomenon, and usually it's not a real mystery. If someone shows up with metastatic disease, let's say of unknown primary, you'll be able to track it back to a large either previously excised or previously unrecognized basal cell carcinoma in nearly all cases. And diagnostically, under the microscope, it's not a major challenge either. I think it's also kind of emblematic of what's happening today in oncology. And as you said, here's a cancer that relatively few people get, yet there's been a lot learned about the biology of the disease, and now we have an FDA-approved targeted agent for it. What have we learned about the biology of basal cell cancer, and what is vismodegib? Yeah. So, you know, this is actually a really powerful scientific story that's worth knowing about because it really helps to make the whole story make a lot of sense. So I mentioned before this phenomenon of basal cell nevus syndrome, the most common germline predisposition to numerous and even metastatic basal cell carcinomas. It was discovered in those individuals that the mutation that they pass in their family is a mutation that affects one of two proteins that are cell surface molecules not surface receptors, the way many people are familiar with EGFR, HER2, which are growth factor receptors. These are surface molecules that basically, they do pass signals from outside the cell, but basically, unlike these other growth factor receptors, they have nothing to do with you know things like growth factor response. Any case, these two molecules, just so you become familiar with the names, are patched, like you know put a patch on a hole, but past tense, patched, and smoothened. So smooth, E-N-E-D, smoothened. These two molecules associate with each other in the membrane. And they need to associate with each other to basically stop smoothened from going inside the cell and driving altered gene transcription, which then can relate to growth and survival and other you know, sort of cancer-like behaviors. And so what happens in the germline condition, that's what we're talking about to start with, is that you find in all cases that there's a mutation in either patched or smoothened that doesn't allow the two to associate, right? So again, they need to associate to sort of hold smoothened at the membrane level. But these mutations don't allow them to associate. So smoothened is now free to roam into the nucleus of the cell and activate sort of growth processes. And it turns out that not only are the germline cases associated with these mutations, but literally every sporadic case is associated with the same mutations. So 90% of the mutations are in smoothened and the remaining 10% in patched. So these two molecules that, again, make up 
the central component of the so-called hedgehog pathway, which shouldn't mean anything to anybody in terms of biologic significance, but that's what it was termed. These are where you always find the mutations in both sporadic cases and in germline. So consider that then like pathognomonic, not only like CML, perhaps even more so than CML. Right, exactly. And the thinking then is that the majority of the cases are sporadic and not hereditary, and somehow the sun is causing the damage to the DNA that leads to this? Yeah, that's the thought. I mean, these are even more sun exposure related than melanoma, for example. So both squamous cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma fit in that category of being very clearly UV damage related. So we have to assume that these mutations are acquired in sporadic cases that way. What do we know about the anti-tumor activity of, for example, vismodegib? Well, I usually summarize it to say that basically these drugs perform in a way that is just about identical to other quote-unquote oncogene-targeted therapies in the you know, oncogene-defined populations. But remember, since all of these patients' tumors have these mutations, you don't actually have to test. That's an important point. You can assume based on extensive published literature, that one of these mutations will be present in either patched or smoothened, and that a patient who's got a histologically proven basal cell carcinoma for which systemic therapy is thought to be needed, that basically they're going to have the relevant mutation that's going to set them up to potentially respond. Now, that doesn't mean everybody responds. So as you well know with the EGFR inhibitors and EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer or the ALK inhibitors and ALK translocated non-small cell lung cancer, BRAF inhibitors and BRAF mutant melanoma, so on and so forth, the profile, which is what I'm alluding to here, is that you get an objective response rate of about 50 to 60%, but you see about 90% of the patients treated having at least some degree of tumor regression, you know, a tiny little bit onto a lot. I guess nowadays, over the last few years, we've gotten used to seeing the so-called waterfall plots. Exactly. Where you see what happens to each patient in the study. And a typical waterfall plot for these kinds of agents you've been talking about, almost every patient seems to have their tumor shrink. That's right. And that's the case here, including complete responses. And that's a very important point that, that I would say, in fact, the complete response rate may be running even a little higher with this type of targeted therapy in this disease than some of the more aggressive cancers that you know, practitioners are more familiar with, like lung cancer and melanoma. So another characteristic of this kind of situation and this type of treatment strategy is that it doesn't last forever. Yeah. After a while, the tumors start growing again and the patients are not cured. Does that apply to vismodegib or the hedgehog inhibitors in general? Yes, it does. And let's cover two topics that I'll just allude to now in kind of outline form. One is the difficulty that some patients have in staying on therapy. And this is a toxicity issue, which obviously this audience would be interested in hearing about. So that's a major problem because obviously if you're off therapy now and having the disease progress after an initial response, that's a different problem than the issue of so-called acquired resistance that emerges while still on therapy. Let me briefly cover that second category, though. Acquired resistance has now been associated, at least in a handful of cases, with new mutations in smoothened, the thing that's being targeted with vismodegib and the other investigational smoothened inhibitors. And so one wonders then, just like with the use of imatinib in both CML and gastrointestinal stromal tumor, for example, and at least a subset of EGFR mutant lung cancers, where one sees resistance mutations in the target itself, and where there's been successful development, at least for CML and GIST, of sort of second generation or follow-on drugs that deal with that. We don't have those drugs yet, but I just want to make it clear that we think we could deal with resistance potentially with just new smoothened inhibitors, next generation drugs. 
And typically, you have a patient, for example, with metastatic disease, they have a response or clinical stabilization. How long does it last? Yeah, so the average duration is about 10 months, which is typical of some other oncogene-targeted therapies, sort of, you know, mutated signaling molecule-targeted therapies. But again, it's some of that number is, quote-unquote, contaminated by difficulty adhering with the therapy even that long. So perhaps it could be longer, for example, if patients were able to stay on therapy or if we were able to come up with strategies to ameliorate toxicity more effectively. So with regard to that, it's interesting. People see these agents, they're oral, they kind of naturally think that it's going to be better tolerated than, for example, chemotherapy. But a lot of these small molecule inhibitors and so many cancers do cause problems and the spectrum of problems with vismodegib seems a little bit different. Can you talk about what you've observed? Yeah, I mean, I'll first off say that we have every reason to believe that these are quote-unquote on-target effects. This is not a problem of vismodegib hitting too many other things. It's just that this so-called hedgehog pathway turns out to, you know, have some normal functions. And I guess you'd have to say that before these drugs came along, we didn't exactly know what those were. Constitutional side effects are the main thing, but let me first off just frame the picture that it's quite uncommon to deal with truly severe side effects from these drugs. I mean, life-threatening is generally unheard of. But even what we, in clinical trials and in practice, consider severe, that's not the problem. The issue is moderate but ongoing. In trial land, I usually refer to these as so-called intolerable grade 2 toxicities. You know, not a problem for a day or a week, but if they grind on month after month, they can be. So fatigue is certainly high on the list. Nausea, an altered sense of taste, so-called dysgeusia, and where, you know, food can really taste unenjoyable, frankly, and chronically, you know, day in, day out, that's the way. Weight loss, of course, can come with that. So you could say anorexia is high on the list, but generally speaking, our sense is that it just comes from this altered sense of taste. So fatigue, nausea, and dysgeusia, those are the top three, and I would say really are major, major issues in terms of being able to keep people on therapy chronically. And then the final one is muscle cramps. And those are actually a legitimate problem in terms of a subset of people really having great difficulty. These cramps can occur at night, interrupting sleep, but can occur, you know, anytime with activity or rest. And some of the typical strategies, you know, magnesium supplementation, quinine, you know, things like that that we've all used in our practice to deal with the occasional issue of cramping in patients, unfortunately haven't been particularly effective with this agent. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about this because it sounds like it's kind of severe in a lot of patients. Any sort of complementary strategies that you use, for example, massage with the cramping, anything you can do in terms of allowing you to enjoy food more comfortably? Right. Just to address some of the issues around eating. So, so this is a once-a-day oral therapy, uh, fixed dose, by the way. And by that, I mean, you know, a single dose. And in fact, the drug is only supplied in a capsule size. That's a single dose. So you, you know, basically take the dose once a day. If issues come up in terms of intolerable side effects, you basically just have to interrupt therapy. That's the primary management strategy. But if you're going to try to stick with, you know, therapy at the standard dose, if you will, Basically, the idea here is that you'll work through the typical antiemetic type therapies, not Zofran, because this is a you know, chronic ongoing issue, but certainly Compazine, Reglan, you know, we've used Ativan on occasion, and try to cycle people kind of across those agents a bit so that they're not just dealing with the issues that come with you know, chronic use of any one of those therapies. But in any case, we try that. Again, it's not going to deal with the taste, but it can help to suppress the nausea element that's part of that package to some degree. 
So we've tried that. And what I would say in terms of, you know, alternative approaches is we've tried acupuncture, which certainly I've reverted to for patients who've had chronic nausea from other therapies. And and I found that that can help alleviate some of their symptoms as well. And I would just mention on the topic of muscle cramps that in addition to trying my usual bag of tricks for that, that's another situation actually where acupuncture may actually have a role because the cramps oftentimes are localized. They don't just, you know, sort of randomly distribute in patients. They'll typically recur in the same place, lower extremities being most common. If the therapy stopped, how long does it take for the taste to return to normal and for them to start feeling normal from that perspective? Yeah, that's the longest lasting. The cramps and the fatigue and even the nausea to some degree get better more quickly. The dyskusia takes a bit longer. So you're talking a couple few weeks is typical and sometimes even longer. If patients have been on therapy for quite some time, they can report that it takes a month or two before they really feel like their taste is returning to normal. And that's an important point because if that's the thing that's really bothering someone and you're conceiving of the idea of a purposeful treatment interruption, you know, it's going to have to be a reasonably long one. This is not a situation where, let's say, like a one-week holiday you know, would be anticipated to be sufficient, unfortunately. So it oftentimes is the case then that in clinical trials and then now in clinical practice, you'll find a situation where people will take the drug, sort of induce a response, let's say four months, six months, something in that time frame to get to kind of quote-unquote maximal response. And then oftentimes to around that time where they really start to probe the issue and are bringing up, hey, you know, can I take a break from this stuff? And then it raises the important question of, well, okay, if you do that and someone is watched then closely after a nice response, will they still be sensitive if you were to go back sometime later? I've heard people say they try to stop it before Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And at least a good couple weeks before Thanksgiving is how most people try to do it. So one final question about BCC before we go on to melanoma. You mentioned the issue of locally advanced disease, in other words, without metastasis, but a big tumor. And I guess one strategy that people are talking about is to use a drug like Vismodegib before local treatment, such as surgery, to try to shrink the tumor down and maybe not require as extensive of surgery. Exactly. So half of the clinical trial population was locally advanced patients. So it's in the FDA approval to use the drug in locally advanced disease. Now, Whereas metastatic disease is very easily defined, locally advanced, less so for clinical trial purposes. So the idea was you really couldn't be resectable, right? In other words, that scenario you painted, which I think is a, a very important clinical scenario that we're now going to be trying to understand of, okay, well, we think this person's resectable, but it's going to take a massive surgery. Could we maybe make that surgery easier with upfront therapy? That wasn't the subject of study in the registration trial for Fismodigib. What was the approach was that basically you had to be able to enumerate that this patient was not resectable, either multifocal disease or a burden of disease at anatomically sensitive sites that just made it that the patient was you know, declared to be unresectable. So amongst those folks, not surprisingly, the response rate was at least as good as the metastatic patients, maybe even a little better. Although I'll admit the tracking of those responses is not so much about CAT scans and measuring nodules in the lung, for example, but rather clinical examination. But, you know, in the real world, that obviously still maps out to how we watch patients who've got cutaneous manifestations of cancer. And suffice to say that even complete responses are not at all uncommon in those locally advanced patients. So you you take that unresectable patient population observation in the trials, and now you wonder, okay, well, sure, I can imagine in my practice I would also leverage that opportunity to use these drugs in that situation. 
But what you're saying, I think, which is a vastly larger number of people who have these lesions occur on cosmetically sensitive sites, you know, the face particularly, where maybe a really large surgery is going to be needed, and that's going to, you know, leave them with a significant scar, and where there's the prospect of, you know, a likely initial response to therapy in a tumor that grows pretty slowly, so you've got some time to think about this and consider it. And so this is an approach that already is now creating multidisciplinary care that didn't used to exist, where now the surgeons, dermatologic surgeons and general surgeons and plastic surgeons who take care of these patients find themselves kind of reaching out to pull in a medical oncologist to think about the idea of upfront systemic therapy for at least a brief period of time as an adjunct to surgery. But it's, you know, in some ways, knowing exactly how successful that's going to prove to be is still a research question. So I want to move on and talk a little bit about melanoma. And we can talk for hours about the new things that are going on in that disease. But I really want to focus on the practical issues, particularly as it relates to toxicity of the newer therapies, and in some cases, older therapies. Can you kind of globally go through what the key things are that you look for when you see a patient you're evaluating for metastatic melanoma? The factors that will influence treatment decision are, you know, sort of your typical kind of age comorbidity performance status metric, right? So you walk in the room and pretty quickly you get a sense of what does this person's health status seem to take off the table or obviously leave on the table in terms of treatment options. So that's the first issue. And then I would go below that to say that their tumor burden, you know, assessed with CAT scans, you know, brain MRI, PET scan, you know, pick one from column A, one from column B. So the staging studies to understand extent of disease, and importantly these days, presence of brain metastases, these are things that are disease characteristics that we bear in mind. And then now the factor that's only been with us for a couple of years is the necessity of doing BRAF mutation testing, which we generally like to do from a metastatic tumor, right? In other words, biopsy of metastatic tumor will take a lymph node if one was resected, let's say, as part of a stage three presentation sometime in the past. That's reasonably reliable as well. We really prefer not to go messing around with digging up archival primary tumors. Turns out there's a lot of heterogeneity around BRAF mutation in the primary tumor to some degree, so it can confuse things a bit. But that's the final piece of information that we need. So it's patient overall characteristics and performance status, disease burden, and BRAF status. You need all that information, really, to know where you stand in terms of treatment options. So maybe we can talk about the specific therapies that are selected. And maybe we begin by talking about the about half of patients who have a tumor with a BRAF mutation. What are the agents that are considered? How effective are they? And what kinds of toxicity do you see? Yeah. Well, let me use this as an opportunity to mention that for patients who have a BRAF mutation, which is about half of all the patients with metastatic disease, they've got a menu of targeted therapies that we're going to talk about first here. And then they also have the immune therapies to consider. And then, of course, for the patients who don't have a BRAF mutation, it's the immune therapies that really are, to this day, the mainstay. So the menu is a bit longer, and it makes it you know, a little bit more nuanced to walk people through the options and allow them to make an informed decision about what to pursue. Let's deal with the targeted therapy. So the first out of the blocks was Vemurafenib, the now FDA-approved BRAF inhibitor for two years and counting, that recently joined by Dibrafenib, another orally available selective BRAF inhibitor. Very similar efficacy profiles between the two drugs based on the large clinical trial data sets that we have, and a little bit of difference in terms of side effect profile, which we can delve into. 
The other targeted agent that was just approved simultaneous with the dibrafenib approval is trametinib, a so-called MEK inhibitor, M-E-K. So it turns out that BRAF activates MEK directly, like it's an immediate partner in the bucket brigade. And so blocking MEK, as it turns out, not just scientifically, but clinically, is a lot like blocking BRAF in terms of the anti-tumor efficacy and with a different side effect profile, interestingly, than the BRAF inhibitors. So there are some differences there that are pretty notable between dibrafenib, vemurafenib, the BRAF inhibitors, and trametinib, the MEK inhibitor. Each of these have been clearly shown to cause tumor regression reliably, like some other oncogene-targeted therapies and other cancers that practitioners are aware of, and disease control, certainly superior compared to conventional chemotherapy from years past, And also overall survival has now been shown reproducibly across this class of agents to be improved as well. So each of those drugs is a single agent, are currently FDA approved and indicated specifically for patients with metastatic melanoma harboring a BRAF mutation. So I guess we talked before about this concept of oncogene addicted tumors and what happens with targeted therapy. Seems like most of the patients do have a response, but those responses don't last forever. Yeah. In fact, while the upfront response likelihood is as robust as it gets across the spectrum of cancers treated with these types of therapies, unfortunately, the duration of response is actually on the low end. Some believe that has to do with just kind of the inherent aggressiveness and the large number of mutations that melanomas have, and they kind of maybe are a little bit more prone to be able to work their way around treatment and develop resistance mechanisms. I think there's other potential explanations beyond that, but the clinical data is what it is, that even in the face of staying on the therapy, and these are therapies that actually aren't so difficult to stay on chronically, you will see disease progression in patients. The average duration of overall control is about seven months with BRAF inhibitor therapy and a little bit closer to five and a half months or so with MEK inhibitor monotherapy. So again, with these small molecules, we often see interesting toxicities and side effects, and some of these are pretty different. Can you talk about what's seen with these agents in terms of side effects? Yeah. So let's deal with the BRAF inhibitors first. And I already alluded to the fact that there are some differences, at least subtle ones, between vemurafenib and dibrafenib. So rash, very common. Arthralgia, so joint discomfort, and even occasionally swelling, but predominantly discomfort, another very common one. And then fatigue. So rash, arthralgia, fatigue for vemurafenib, very, very common. And those are not unique to vemurafenib, but they top the list for it. Let me deal with one that is unique for vemurafenib, and that's photosensitivity. And this is just plain and simple. Some patients, not all, become extremely sun sensitive and can develop sunburns with trivial amounts of sun exposure. And that can happen, frankly, even in the face of pretty respectable sun protective measures, not through clothing, but you know they might be using sunscreen and yet still, and I'm just talking about being outside. I'm not talking about laying out in the sun and developing really severe, sometimes very focal sunburns where they got you know sun on their knuckles when they were driving and that light coming through the windshield even was enough to do that. So it's something to be very aware of because it's a real quality of life hit for patients. And then let me just pick up another really important one that does cross between vemurafenib and dibrafenib, and that's the appearance of squamous cell carcinomas, cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. This is something that's been seen in up to a quarter of the patients treated with vemurafenib in the clinical studies, that early in the course of therapy, typically within one, two, or three months, someone will have a lesion that's non-pigmented, doesn't look at all like a melanoma or a metastasis from melanoma, crop up quickly. On a background of what 
previously had looked like normal skin. So this is not like, you know, you see a precursor lesion and then it grows, but really they appear typically to be kind of de novo. Biopsies have proven that these are squamous cell carcinomas and they're very, very well differentiated cousin, so-called keratoacanthoma. These things in general, when they occur, are thought to have extremely low metastatic potential. So the standard is remove them and continue on treatment because, of course, you're dealing with metastatic melanoma here is the underlying problem. But one does need to be aware of it. There are rare case reports, but in the published literature, clear cases of individuals who've had a few other types of cancer emerge in the midst of BRAF inhibitor therapy. So I think practitioners need to be aware of this phenomenon. You know, it's not maybe enough to question the wisdom of using a BRAF inhibitor. These drugs clearly improve survival. But I think practitioners don't want to be falling asleep at the switch if something kind of unusual signs or symptoms show up that might tip off the possibility of another malignancy. Again, the squamous cells on the skin, but maybe even the possibility of something elsewhere. So you mentioned the second BRAF inhibitor that's now available, dabrafenib. What about its tolerability? Yeah, so similar profile, except I would highlight a couple things. A little less arthralgia. Photosensitivity is not seen. And what is seen, a bit not entirely unique, but more so with dabrafenib than vemurafenib, is fever that can occur sporadically during the course of therapy. And really exhaustive efforts have been undertaken to make sure it wasn't evidence of infection. And so it really seems to be a clear drug effect. It's not an allergic thing. People probably are aware of drug fever as an allergic phenomenon. It doesn't appear to be that because you can interrupt dosing and start up again and not see it. But it's something people have to be aware of because, of course, all of us who take care of cancer patients, some of whom are getting immunosuppressive therapies where you're obviously very alerted to fever, these drugs are not immunosuppressive, but you, know, you still have to be mindful of the fact that fever can happen. It's not a reason to panic, but probably a reason to think about at least taking NSAIDs, possibly interrupting therapy for two or three days, which is usually pretty effective in terms of getting the fevers to go away. And, and oftentimes they don't recur. They'll just be kind of a one or a cluster of episodes spread over a couple days, but then not thereafter. Now, what about trametinib? What's seen in terms of side effects? And how do you decide between using trametinib and one of the BRAF inhibitors? Yeah, so the side effect profile is different in that trametinib also causes rash, but actually looks very, very different than the vemurafenib dabrafenib rash. That's a more sheet-like rash, so-called macular rash, where the skin can even be kind of inflamed, but you don't see necessarily little dots. With trametinib, you see what for all the world looks like a papular spot-like rash that can be acneiform. It can be like acne. It can be on the face and chest like EGFR inhibitors, but in fact can be far more diffuse than that in some cases. So rash is a big issue with that drug in terms of potential quality of life impact, just like with the EGFR inhibitors. Diarrhea is the other one. That's the other big one that comes up that people obviously can have an issue with. There's a In the single-agent trametinib phase 3 trial, for example, there was an 8% rate of grade 3 diarrhea, so you know, a fair amount of diarrhea in a significant fraction of those patients. But those are the two big ones, and that sort of tops the list. I'll just mention the one much less common but serious and therefore needs to be brought to people's attention, and that's eye problems, specifically an entity where fluid builds up behind the retina. There's a terrible jargon term for this called central serous retinopathy. 
turns out to be reversible, either with drug holding and in some instances even with continuation. But basically people can complain of blurry vision. You send them to an ophthalmologist, they can diagnose this very readily with a slit lamp examination. And it's pretty common in the end. I mean, it's a few percent of patients who get this, so it's pretty reproducible across clinical studies. There was a concern years ago of a different entity that some might have heard of, retinal vein occlusion, much more concerning issue, but rare, clearly rare. In fact, in the large phase three trial with trametinib, there wasn't a single case. So it seems to be less than one in a few hundred type of proposition. But eye effects are kind of a unique MEK inhibitor thing, and trametinib being the first FDA-approved MEK inhibitor is one that raises this to practitioners have to know about it. You'd asked the question before about when would you use the drug? That's actually a much more challenging issue because... The BRF inhibitors cause a bit more tumor regression, tumor shrinkage, than the MEK inhibitors in patients who have a BRF mutation but you know, haven't seen either therapy, right, or sort of targeted therapy naive. It seems like the disease control is fairly comparable and the overall survival data look quite comparable, but it's just that issue of, you know, the amount of tumor shrinkage being one that pretty clearly seems to lean in favor of the BRF inhibitors. And so since we have BRAF inhibitors on the market for these patients, and then obviously also now weighing the issue of the MEK inhibitor, trametinib, generally speaking, most practitioners will lean toward the BRAF inhibitor amongst these drugs as single agents. We had been hopeful that the MEK inhibitor might work as a salvage therapy for these patients because we've learned now a few years ago that the pathway in which BRAF and MEK sit is reactivated at the time of resistance to BRAF inhibitor therapy. But it turns out that MEK inhibitor by itself at that juncture has really almost no efficacy whatsoever. And in fact, the FDA went to the trouble of putting it in the label to say, don't bother. Trametinib is a backup therapy. It doesn't seem to pack much punch. It is possible that a MEK inhibitor first followed by a BRAF inhibitor could actually be a better sequence of therapies, even though the BRAF inhibitors have more upfront tumor regression. But that actually hasn't really been explored yet thoroughly in any clinical studies. So I just leave it open as a possibility that remains to be proven. The big emerging wave here regarding MEK inhibitors and why we think they could be useful is in combination with a BRAF inhibitor. In other words, a dual targeted approach targeting the same pathway, BRAF, which activates MEK, and blocking both at the same time. My group and collaborators conducted a phase one slash randomized phase two trial that we published last year that suggested that response rates higher, overall disease control rate and duration is better. That needs to be corroborated, but we're going to get that data later this year, in fact, from a subsequent phase three trial, which accrued very quickly to test this kind of two-drug approach versus BRAF inhibitor monotherapy. So keep your ears open for that one, because that would be the obvious then reason to rally towards the use of a MEK inhibitor. So I want to close out asking you about newer forms of immune therapy of melanoma and one that we've had available for a while is so-called high-dose interleukin-2 what is it, and in what situations is it utilized? So high-dose IL-2 has been with us now for almost two decades. Very intense therapy. You know, Like interferon, it's a naturally produced molecule by the immune system, and it engineers immune cells to be able to attack tumor cells. doesn't do it nearly as reliably as we would like. But unlike interferon, which causes its flu-like symptoms, IL-2 causes a sepsis-like picture. So in other words, like drug-induced sepsis that isn't associated with infection. It's just the drug, because you can turn off the drug. So this therapy is administered in the hospital. Some hospitals need to give it in an ICU environment. Other more experienced programs will administer it on the floor, but with nurses who have a great deal of expertise 
in doing this. The intention is to give 14 doses every eight hours. So basically, you know, three times a day, up to 14 doses, and then stop. Stop short of that if you cross certain thresholds in terms of side effects. And really, again, it's this sepsis type stuff. So the hypotension you have to deal with, and we can deal with, but there's limits to that. End organ effects from hypotension sometimes create a stopping point, and you can get direct organ irritation like liver, for example, that can force you to stop as well. And you can see blood counts go down, not like chemotherapy, because they come back up quickly when you stop, but if they get extremely low, sometimes that forces us to stop short of 14 doses as well. So one time in the hospital for up to 14 doses, which would take five days if you got all of them, usually a recovery day, then out of the hospital, take the next week off to recover at home, and then back again for another up to 14 doses. So in other words, a pair of 14-dose administrations is the regimen. And that regimen and no further therapy can cause tumors to not only regress, but even completely regress. If you cherry-pick patients carefully, you have to pick people who are relatively young and in good shape, right? Because this is a serious physiologic stress to get this treatment. We've learned in retrospect, looking at the clinical studies, that if you also kind of focus on patients who have pretty low disease burden, lung-only involvement, let's say, or lymph node involvement, lung and lymph node, but not visceral organs beyond that, that's a group that's a bit more likely to be able to have a durable response, including complete responses, than patients who have multi-organ involvement. It's not to say that responses can happen in those folks, but they're pretty unlikely. So in our practice still, for the young, highly motivated, low disease burden patient, we still think about it because you're talking about a cherry-picked population who can have a 5 to 7% chance of durable response lasting years and apparently permanently based on the retrospective data. And published cohort data more recently show that if you cherry-pick in this way, you might even be able to get up to 10% in terms of durable responses. So that's a non-zero number. To be able to eradicate disease with kind of two sessions in the hospital as the treatment, you can imagine there is still a kernel there of something that might be compelling. But admittedly, with ipilimumab, which was FDA approved two years ago as outpatient immune therapy, and then the investigational PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies that are kind of the next generation of ipilimumab-like outpatient immune therapies. As these drugs emerge, people are kind of thinking a bit less about HIDOSIL-2. So maybe you can chat a little bit about ipilimumab as well as anti-PD-1, how they work and what we know about their clinical activity. Yeah, so unlike the story with interferon and interleukin-2, which are these naturally produced molecules in the body, that's not the story with ipilimumab or the subsequent drugs that are currently in trials. These are engineered antibodies so think of rituximab for lymphoma or trastuzumab for breast cancer as similar in that they are engineered antibodies that target a surface molecule. In this case, the target or the surface molecule that's being targeted is on immune cells. And in fact, what's being targeted is a molecule called CTLA-4. It's a piece of jargon that is not so critical to the discussion, but CTLA-4 is a break on the immune system. I mean, in other words, literally think of gas pedals and brakes on these cells. And you need to have both to be able to kind of mount an immune response and then turn off an immune response in normal life. But it's been learned that in the setting of cancer, the breaks are being applied a bit more than we'd like, and you can alleviate the break or block the break with a drug like this. So the good of that is that you can unleash these pre-existing tumor-recognizing immune cells, so-called T-cells, and they will attack the tumor. 
Now, again, the reliability of them doing that is not as much as we would like, but I'll come back and comment on that in just a moment. The downside comes from exactly the same mechanism, which is that you have immune cells, unfortunately, in your body from birth that can recognize normal tissue and they're dormant and don't cause a problem in most of us anyway, those of us who don't have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or Crohn's disease. But basically these cells exist and this drug can trigger these cells to start attacking normal tissue, not in a permanent way, that doesn't create you know, chronic autoimmune conditions, but at least in the short term, it can create them. And sometimes that can even be life-threatening. So the downside and the upside come from the same biology. Let me briefly summarize the efficacy side, which is that you get a very clear response to therapy that can be durable for years after documentation of response and after completion of what amounts to about a two and a half month course of treatment in about 10% of patients. So about 10% of patients, clear as day, clear tumor shrinkage that then persists and survives post-discontinuation of the treatment. You have an additional fraction of patients in the clinical trials who have gone on to live two, three years and counting, and that fraction has been 25% in one of the phase three trials, pushed a little bit above 30% in another one of the phase three trials, and there's some phase two studies that suggest maybe that fraction could be even higher, maybe perhaps in more selected patient populations. But in other words, there's this group of people who get the very obvious direct treatment effect that's not subtle, and other folks who really don't have that much tumor shrinkage. They might even have tumor growth initially, but that then plateaus, or they just kind of hold a plateau and don't ever have a growth or shrinkage. And some of those, only some, will go on to be durable, quote-unquote, responders to therapy, absent clear regression of disease. So there's a fraction, a minority there, who can get that benefit. And with relatively little cost in terms of side effects and sort of interruption to life for most people. So let me briefly mention, the drugs infused over the course of about 45 minutes on an every three-week schedule for four doses, right? So day one, three weeks later, the next one, three weeks later, the next one, three weeks later, the fourth and final. And that's it. That's the regimen. And so those who go on to get long-term benefit are just watched thereafter and don't have to get further treatment, generally speaking. And the nature of the side effects is that you don't generally see a whole lot of immune system misbehavior after dose number one, but it's after dose two, three, and four, where you kind of have this gradually increasing prospect of seeing something in the realm of rash, diarrhea, liver function test abnormalities, or endocrine gland, like thyroid gland, adrenal gland, pituitary gland, dysfunction. Each of these are representative of the main target organs that can be attacked, skin, intestine, liver, and endocrine glands are the top four that are, you know, the vast majority of the issues that we have to deal with from this drug.